0: Welcome to the Parlay
1: Podcast, a thought provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 3. Like I mentioned previously, Season 4 is all about bilingualism, multilingualism, and linguistic varieties. Today we will talk more specifically about linguistic varieties. Back in March, my social media showed me a very interesting article that had just come out. This came at a time where I was thinking a lot about linguistic ideologies here in Canada and how we are often judged, and even how we judge, others based on the way we speak. This article, titled The White Ears of Ofsted A Racial Linguistic Perspective on the Listening Practices of the Schools Inspectorate, was published online by Cambridge University Press in March 2022. I immediately took interest, and after reading the 20 or so pages of the article, I was thrown into a vortex of questioning and reflection about my own linguistic ideologies. Soon after, I contacted the other authors because I absolutely wanted to share this very important study with you, the audience. So I'm super honoured to host both doctors, Ian Cushing and Julia Snell on the Parley podcast. Hello to you both and welcome.
0: Hi, lovely to be here.
1: Hi, it's
2: great for, uh, to be here. Thanks for the invite.
1: Oh, wonderful. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, So, Dr. Ian Cushing Cushing is a senior lecturer in English and education at Edge Hill University in Northwest England. He examines how historical and contemporary language policies and pedagogies are shaped by language ideologies, especially those which work to oppress minoritized speakers. His work also explores how literary texts can be used to challenge language-based stigma and suppression in schools. Dr. Julia Snell is Associate Professor of English Language at the University of Leeds. Her work explores the role of language in education from a sociolinguistic perspective. She has researched and published on children's language variation and class identities, language and educational inequalities, dialogic pedagogy, and teacher professional development. So, i that's a very brief introduction. Um, you know, the listeners often like to hear a little bit more about how the guests came to, you know, study whatever topic it is they're studying. So, I started this uh, introduction by talking about this uh, article or this study that was conducted on racial linguistic perspective on the listening practices of the school's inspectorate. And so, um, tell us about your work and how it led you to conduct the study that was recently published. Um, Ian, perhaps you can go first.
0: Sure. Um, so, well, me and Julia have both worked on language and ideology for, for some years now, and we both have interest in language and, and schools and language and educational inequalities. And our work on Ofsted um, started, I think it was back in the summer of 2020, so almost two years ago now. <clears throat> and w- what what we began to notice really was what we felt to be quite problematic comments about spoken language in, in Ofsted inspection reports. So we can explain a bit more about of- what Ofsted are in a moment maybe, but the, the headlines really are that Ofsted stands for uh, the Office for Standards in uh, education, children's services, and skills, and they uh, conduct inspections of all schools in England. Essentially, and, and after these inspections, they produce reports about, about the schools. And what we, what we noticed looking at some of those reports is that Ofsted were making quite regular comments about speech um, in schools, and in particular about the presence or the absence of, of standard or non-standard English, and. What the comments seem to be doing was that they seem to be drawing connections between the presence or the absence of standard or non-standard English with ideas about good teaching or or good or poor academic progress or or good quality classroom talk, for example. So we're really pushing what's called a standard language ideology, i.e. the idea that if you use standard English, then this is somehow representative of better speech or proper speech, etc. And... So our stance has always been, as educational linguists, that there's absolutely no correlation between good teaching and the use of either standard or, or non-standard English. But Ofsted, as a very powerful institution, seems to be uh, promoting and pushing this ideology. So, so we dug a little bit deeper and we found that these comments in reports that we looked at weren't just a one-off, but were actually fairly widespread. And um, at the time, we we contacted representatives from Ofsted to to kind of raise our our concerns and tried to engage with them on a on a critical level, but also trying to to kind of support them in, in what we felt was was problematic work. But and we had two private meetings with representatives from Ofsted in which we spoke to them about some of the things that we'd found. But we we, we ended our engagement with Ofsted because we we felt that they weren't listening. We felt that they 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 were uh, refusing to accept sort of what we felt were very genuine criticisms of what they were doing. So that spurred us on, I guess, to do some more rigorous and in-depth um, work, again, that we can talk more about in a bit. Um, I think I've, I think that's right. And am I remembering that right, Julia, in terms of how, how we started doing this work?
2: Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I mean, if I think about... Um, I think, as, as you said, Ian, both of us, we've spent a long time thinking about some of these issues. And we've kind of probably both come to this study from slightly different roots. And I think a lot, you know, when I think about the trajectory of my research, um, a lot of it has kind of led to here to quite naturally when I think about it now. So if I think about my research, um, it's been in two different strands um, that have led to this project in different ways. So I've um, in the past done research on children's language variation um, and in particular how that relates to children's social class backgrounds and their identities. So without going into into lots of details about the findings that emerge from that, um, what I ultimately did was use some of that research to challenge some of the quite negative and uninformed views about working class children's language that we often see in the media and we hear about in, in general discourse and also unfortunately in some education policy documents. Um, I sought to challenge that by demonstrating actually first of all working class children already use standardized forms in their speech so it's not correct and it's certainly not appropriate to suggest that their language is non-standard or in any sense deficient or in need of remediation. It's just that they happen to use those standardized forms alongside local dialect forms and non-standardized forms. Forms as part of an extended linguistic repertoire. Uh, and moreover, and this is the kind of second point, um, they use the variation in their language repertoires to make meaning. So the children that I ordered in previous research, what I found was when they used a particular local dialect form instead of its standardized alternative, quite often it was because it encoded a particular attitudinal stance or a particular social meaning that was important to their peer group. Um, and all of, all of us use language variation in this way you know we make these kinds of choices according to who we're talking to and the particular um, aims of our interaction it's in that sense that language is a resource Um, but unfortunately in educational contexts where we get this overriding expectation that students speak only for standardized English language variation and diversity is often seen as a problem and too often that problem is located quite squarely Within the child, and that has obvious negative consequences for the child. So, I was kind of doing that sort of work, um, but that's one perspective um, through which I approach the work on Ofsted that Ian and I started to do because we see that kind of problematizing of language variation within the Ofsted reports. Um, the second strand of my research that sort of brings me here is research on classroom talk and dialogic pedagogy. Um, so if, if I've still got a bit of time, Chantal, I don't want to take up too much time with this. Is that OK?
1: Yes, absolutely. Please continue.
2: So the, the second strand of my research that 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 has informed this work on Ofsted is to do with classroom discourse and dialogic pedagogy. So um, kind of briefly put, dialogic pedagogy is this approach to teaching and learning um, that seeks to exploit the power of talk to engage, to shape and enhance children's thinking. And when when I I use the term talk, I'm not just talking about any kind of talk. Dialogic talk is talk that um, makes thinking public, it stimulates thinking, it refines thinking. And it's that kind of talk that we want children to participate in in the classroom. Um, and research into this kind of pedagogy has shown that children who experience this kind of really rich and academically stimulating talk do better than their peers who haven't had that experience. And in a recent study in the UK, the findings showed that um, dialogic pedagogy was able to raise achievement for everybody, but the children um, who did the, who, whose achievement increased the most were those on free school meals. So that's often used as a proxy in the UK for socioeconomic status. So what we have here then is this idea that a particular way of using talk in the classroom can raise achievement for everyone, but in particular, it can raise achievements for those students from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds. So it could be a way of, um, you know, helping and promoting social mobility. But, and there always tends to be a but, doesn't there, Um, this kind of talk, happens relatively rarely in classrooms and it seems to happen the least often precisely in those schools in areas of socioeconomic disadvantage and so this is another perspective from which I approach the work on Ofsted reports because um, the language policing in some of those reports and the kind of surveillance culture that it generates is likely to discourage open dialogue in the classroom
1: That's very interesting. And I like how you say dialogic talk makes thinking public and it is so important to allow children to think aloud and to really, you know, process whatever it is that they are learning. And I know that there were some preliminary findings of a a study conducted here in Canada showing that some children only talk 15 minutes a day when they're at school, right? And that is at the higher end. They're really not using a lot of this, like you're saying, dialogic talk in in the classroom. Um, So I definitely think that it is very important. And this is some of the work that you're doing in the UK. I know that there are a lot of people that are looking at um, different... language variation in Canada. And also, um, I had recently listened to a podcast by Julie Washington in the United States. And she does a lot of work on linguistic variety and dialects, uh, especially as it pertains to African American English. And so this is something that we're now, you know, we're really exploring internationally. And I think it's important that talk about it openly and raise awareness on on why standard English or you know standard French or whatever standard the language is is not the end-all be-all for for these children so um, could you tell us perhaps more about this particular study and your findings
0: yeah so so I so I explain a little bit about how we how we started the work um, just through kind of random reading of inspection reports really but we'd always felt a bit of discomfort about what Ofsted represented. And what I mean by that is they they have a huge amount of uh, and a disproportionate amount of power uh, in England. They're really kind of de facto education policymakers. And they have a huge amount of power because when Ofsted releases policy, schools will often react to that policy because they read that policy as what they believe Ofsted to be looking out for. Uh, as kind of models of good practice and so we always felt that Ofsted were this kind of uh, threat really to schools that would often result in in practice that was a little bit problematic especially in terms of language. Um, So Ofsted have got a really long history that England has had a a schools inspector of some form since uh, 1839 uh, they inspect all state funded schools in England, as well as teacher, uh, teacher education programmes uh, in, in England uh, and in former British colonies as well. So there's definitely a, an essence of coloniality with Ofsted that we're interested in. Um, so what Ofsted do, they, they every few years they'll conduct a, an inspection of a school um, in which they'll spend around two to three days worth of time in a school, and uh, in that time, they'll they'll observe lessons. They'll speak to teachers and head teachers and students. Uh, and their inspection results that they publish after their time in that school have huge huge implications for schools and funding and the careers of teachers and and the reputation of a school. And part of their inspection work involves uh, making judgments and perceptions about about language. And we were particularly interested for this work about. Offset's perception on on spoken language. Um, So the kind of judgments or or auditory judgments that the inspectors make when when they spend time in schools are made through really quite privileged ears or what we call the white listening subjects, borrowing work from from Jonathan Rosa uh, and uh, Nelson Flores. And Ofsted inspectors represent um, a pretty privileged um, sector of, of English class society. They're 92% white. They have a 92% white workforce. They earn a, an annual salary of around 70 grand. So they're in uh, a position of racial and social economic power, um, and so they really represent a, a kind of institution which has which has a huge amount of power in order to transform what schools actually do, especially in terms of how they go about policing the language of both teachers and students. And so our work is not critical at all of individual inspectors, but it's critical of what we see as a very normalised and institutionalised part of their culture, which has been really integral to their logic since they began uh, in the mid-1800s so what we did for the work then there were there was kind of three strands the first strand involved compiling a data set of of what we called historical data so some of the older inspection reports that were published between 1839 uh, and the early 1990s and so that involved me going to the National Archives in London which hold all of these old inspector reports and I spent about a week there in the archives combing through some of those old reports and looking for Comments about speech and about language. And we then compiled uh, a corpus. So, in terms of our contemporary data, we compiled a corpus of around 100,000 inspection reports from schools that are all publicly available on Ofsted's website. And we randomly selected uh, 3,000 of these. And with our corpus software, we were then able to trace through the corpus for terms which we felt were particularly representative of language ideologies and specifically what's called ratio linguistic ideologies which we can which we can maybe define later so we trace through the corpus for for phrases like uh, standard or non-standard english uh, ungrammatical speak properly limited vocabulary articulativeness and so on and so on and what we found was a huge num- number of reports where the inspector were passing judgment, often quite negative judgment, on the spoken language that both teachers and students used in the classroom, or at least what the inspectors were perceiving through, uh, through these white ears. Um, so what they were doing was passing negative judgment about the presence of non-standard speech or, or features of certain local accent or dialects and at the same time, offering praise to schools where it was deemed that teachers and students were speaking exclusively in standardized English. So just to give a couple of examples, so this runs all the way back to, to the 1800s. So we have things like, many of the children were illiterate in regards to patterns of speech, much needs to be done to cultivate the pronunciation of boys and to highlight these deficiencies in speech. A 2021 report uh, said um, there are times when pupils use non-standard forms of grammar in their speaking and writing and that adults should ensure that they're consistently modelling standard English. A 2013 report highlighting how in the best lessons teachers speak in standard English and students are provided with a list of banned words to remind them. Uh, 2019, some adults have weak spoken English grammar, leaders need to ensure that staff need to do more to correct pupils' poor language. We get the idea, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we were really overwhelmed with the amount of, of what we felt were really degrading and quite denigrating comments about the speech of both teachers and students. So what was particularly interesting and potentially probably probably the most important part of this is that. What we found was that some of the most hostile comments about spoken language were made in schools serving some of those communities that Julie was talking about earlier in her work. So primarily students from low-income backgrounds, from low socioeconomic backgrounds, students who are primarily racialized in some kind of way. So there was definitely some kind of relationship between negative comments about speech and ideologies about race and class. And that given the inspectorate's position as white, economically privileged institution, we felt that this was particularly important in terms of language policing, never just being about language, but about being about race and about class. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a very very brief summary uh, and, the, and the kind of headlines of the work. Um, is that does, have I captured it? Do you think, Julia?
2: That's a fantastic summary of the work, Ian. Typically clear. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think. Perhaps the only thing I would add is, um, and you alluded to this in one of the examples where Ofsted made this comment that in the best lessons, you know, pupils were reminded that they had to speak in standard English and so on. So we had this link being made with good quality teaching and also with with ability. So, you know, students who were using standardised English were being um, positioned as being more able, um, you know, clear, articulate students who were speaking non-standardised English were sometimes being described as less able or lacking in clarity or confused. Um, If we add to that this idea that Ian has already talked about, which is that the most hostile comments uh, were made in relation to those schools um, in areas serving racially minoritized or or low-income children, we get some potentially quite dangerous links being made between class, race, language, and then things like ability. Um, and that obviously becomes really problematic. Now, in this this project that we've that, that we've just published, the research that we've just published, we don't interrogate those links um, systematically. But that is something that we're going to do in further work because, um, you know, we we identify that as as a potentially really serious um, issue within the inspectorate's work.
1: Well, especially if you noted that pattern that those schools in low socioeconomic. Uh, you know, areas tended to have more negative comments in those inspection yeah. reports. Absolutely. Yeah. So perhaps before you know, we we delve a little bit deeper here. Could you tell us a bit more about language ideologies and what what does that entail exactly?
2: Yeah. Um, so put simply, language ideologies are beliefs about language which influence our own language use, and crucially, how we hear and evaluate others' language. And typically, these beliefs are around what counts as good or bad language, and which social groups speak in better or worse ways. When we think about standard language ideology in particular, so now this is a particular set of beliefs in and around an idealised standard language which is considered to be the norm or the level of correctness which we should all be aspiring to. Um, the linguist Lippy Green points out that while um, this standard is purportedly modelled on the written language, it's actually drawn primarily from the spoken language of the upper middle classes. So it is the language of a particularly privileged group of speakers that is being recognised as the standard. Um, Then what happens is the kind of qualities conventionally associated with these privileged speakers, things like educatedness, intelligence, professionalism, competence, status, these qualities become associated with the language itself. So we get this idea of an idealized standard English, which is simply inherently better. It is inherently, you know, someone who speaks standard English is inherently more educated, you know, more competent, more intelligent. Um, So the importance of sociolinguistic work in this area is to show why this isn't the case, to highlight these links with class and race and why standard English has come to be seen as as the kind of best and most powerful language variety. Um, And perhaps just to, to make that wider point that these sorts of views about language are never just about language. They are about these intersections of class, race, gender um, and this is why it's really important to research language ideologies, because if we start to research language ideologies, we can start to expose structural and institutional discrimination against marginalised communities. And that's what, you know, Ian and I are getting at with this work um, around Ofsted, that these kinds of language ideologies um, become really ingrained in some institutions like the schools Inspectorate, and, and that they play out in ways that disadvantage certain groups Um, speakers.
1: And so, you know, I'm trying to, a lot of the listeners are teachers, uh, parents, speech and language pathologists, linguists. And so I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of these ideologies kind of fall into an unconscious bias. You know, some of us are probably not even aware that we associate speech or language to race and and culture and whatnot. And so how can we avoid, you know, classifying different varieties in a certain way? So what are teachers supposed to teach or what, what variation are they supposed to teach? And, you know, what's, what's, how do we, how do we, you know, once you know better, you do better. So how do you do better? Right.
2: Um, I think the idea of, of kind of talking about it and raising consciousness that you've just alluded to is, is really important. So, you know, the, the, the very way in which standard language ideology works is that the standard is simply perceived as the best way of speaking, as the correct way of speaking. And, you know, that's in, in a sense, it's presented as, well, that's not up for debate it is the, the correct way of speaking and you know most people buy into that so it's not just the powerful groups in society who believe that because it's based on their language you know we all tend to buy into that and that's why you get people who speak non-standardized varieties of english um you know regulating and policing their own language um, and feeling kind of uh, you know uh embarrassed of their own ways of speaking in certain contexts like professional contexts or in the classroom Um, and so there's a sense in which we we kind of all buy into this Um, but I think it's really important to talk about where these links between you know language and power come from um, so that when teachers are teaching about standard and non-standard English within the classroom they can start to have a conversation with students you know around some of the social and political dimensions of standard English explaining why it has come to hold such power um, you know those historic links with class and race um, and therefore kind of educating uh, and I would say empowering students to understand language attitudes and biases um, you know Those language attitudes are out there. We all have them, but we need to understand where they come from so that, you know, children who speak non-standardized varieties of English start to understand. It's not that their language is inherently lacking in value, is not as good as other people's language, um, they understand why a particular model of language has come to be seen as the most correct or best way of speaking, and they might want to engage with that and play that game. But then they're then not internalizing this sense that their own ways of speaking um, are valued less. Equally, you know, students who speak standardised English need to be aware of that kind of privilege and where that comes from, so that they themselves can start to question their own language attitudes and evaluations, and perhaps. You know, think of it more before they, they move to, to judge someone by the way they speak.
1: Yes, and I guess we have to start somewhere, right? And I know that in, um, I, I forget if it was this particular article, or I, I believe, uh, Ian, there was one that was published in 2019, and, you know, the teachers believed that they were helping students for you know later on during an interview they would be more successful in the work field and so we have that perception that if students don't speak the standard English that they're not going to be successful later on in life and so um, it it really does trickle into every aspects of our lives and so starting we we have to start somewhere.
0: Right and that's exactly how language ideologies are, are so embedded and so normalized and so durable because there is this myth and this belief that if marginalised speakers modify their speech, then this will suddenly kind of create access to things that have previously been denied from them, whether it be jobs or academic opportunities. But in reality, such speakers still face stigmatisation because perceptions about language are never just about language. I think that's the third time that, that, that we've said that, right? So marginalized speakers will always face social inequalities, regardless of what they do with their language. But that's exactly how language ideologies remain so durable and remain so embedded and, and, and therefore so difficult to
1: challenge. I, I, I'm going to say it one more time, you know, perceptions about language are never just about language. And I think we have to think about that for a minute I had interviewed um, a couple of gentlemen from Nigeria Africa I think it was season three and they talked a lot about this and how in in a lot of African communities where you can find over 200 dialects in schools they really try to take the you know dialectal accent out of their speech and give them either the British accent or the American accent and these two gentlemen were really trying to move away from that and instead of giving them you know the the standard English they were trying to make them better communicators and I think at the end of the day that's what's really important how are you as a communicator regardless of your variety of regardless of your accent and um, that had really hit home for me. Yeah, I think
2: that- so important because of course there are better and worse ways of communicating, um, but but those really have very little to do with the kind of accent or dialect that you use. Um, so as linguists, we're not saying that there aren't, you know, we can't adjust the way that we communicate in different situations to have you know a bigger impact, um, to be more convincing or whatever we're trying to do. But it's just that actually. It's kind of superficial to think that that's about accent or dialect. It really isn't.
0: Yeah, I think also I'd add to that is that it it that a lot of that the, the risk in that was also that it places the complete responsibility on the speaker to do all of the work, whereas actually we see the listener as having the one that has equal, if not more, responsibility. Right. So in the article, we take what what's called a ratio linguistic perspective, where we shift the attention away from the the speaker and, and in particular the stigmatised speaker, and we place attention on what the listener's doing and thinking about how language ideologies get produced and maintained and crafted through these racialized and classed modes of perception. Because the problem is never with the speaker, the problem is always with the listener.
1: I like that. And that is a, how you end. So, you know, if the listeners want to read a, a shorter version of the article, you did publish a, a, a brief article in the conversation and I'll put the link to that in the show notes at the parleypodcast.com. And, you know, you finish that article by stating just that, that we suggest that often Ofsted needs to change the way it listens rather than asking young people and teachers to change the way they speak wow, what a powerful message. And, you know, thank you for stating it so boldly, because I think it needs to be, it needs to be read, it needs to be heard, it needs to be said. So very important indeed. So you just touched on racial linguistic uh, ideologies. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, please?
0: Yeah, so, so racial linguistic ideologies are definitely kind of interlock and definitely relate to to what Julia was talking about in relation to standard language ideologies, but racial linguistic ideologies are again, sets of beliefs about language, which uh, connects bodies that are in some way racialized to these imagined linguistic deficiencies. And, and the word imagined is really important there because nobody has linguistic deficiencies. These deficiencies are simply crafted through these modes of perception. So, through years and years and centuries and centuries that the the normalization of these ideologies about about race and language have upholded this belief that certain ways of talking i.e white middle class ways of talking and ways of listening have come to be seen as as standard and more more appropriate and the consequence of that has been the kind of long denigration and and marginalization of, of various communities and the way that they speak so these, these these deficit perce- perceptions about language are, are not based on empirically kind of uh, audible or empirically listable kind of language practices, but they're classed and racialized modes of perception where the language of minoritized and racialized speakers get framed as, as limited, as lacking, as, as deficient. And in our work is seen as unsuitable for school. So take standard English, for example, and how that, that, that is a product of ratio linguistic ideologies. This isn't this list of kind of objectively defined features, but it's, it's a social and it's a colonial construct. So ratio linguistic ideologies place a great importance on how ideologies about language are tethered and anchored to specifically european colonialism and in our work we're interested in the links between british colonialism and the kinds of degrading often very dehumanizing discourses which european colonial agents would use to represent the language and therefore speakers of non-european languages
2: To what, I mean, Ian's um, such a clear explanation of racial linguistic ideologies and just to kind of really emphasise that this link with standard English and the idea that once we stop thinking about standard English as a set of objective linguistic practices, which therefore one can acquire, um, then we can start to challenge the idea that standard English gives us access to, you know, opportunity and social mobility because it isn't the case that an individual can kind of acquire this set of linguistic practices and then kind of, you know, go on to be accepted by others and to be successful. Um, Actually, it's more about them um, embodying a particular subject position um, of idealized whiteness or idealized middle-classness. And clearly that, you know, that isn't possible for them. Um, So they're still, you know, they're never going to reach that kind of level of idealization by which they can, you know, achieve this mythical social mobility. Um, And actually, you know, trying to modify um, individuals' language behavior really isn't the answer at all. It's about thinking about some of these structural inequalities. So, um, you know, Ofsted's, this is something Ian and I um, talk about, you know, Ofsted's talk about standard English within a social justice agenda. So this idea that we're giving pupils access to standard English and therefore, you know, to educational opportunities, to job opportunities in the future. And obviously no one would argue with the idea that we want these children to be successful. Of course we want them to fulfil their potential and prosper. But what we're saying is that simply insisting that children who speak non-standardized accents and dialects must modify their speech to this idealized standards, um, it's not going to lead to social mobility. It's actually probably going to exacerbate social inequalities. Mm-hmm. So if we just continue to uphold this one way of speaking, the language patterns associated with the white middle classes as being the best, indeed the only correct way of speaking, then obviously that's going to benefit the mm-hmm. white middle classes yes. much more ever going to benefit those are other groups in society so all we're doing is just upholding existing systems uh, and, and power structures in society that privilege certain groups and, and and you know disadvantage and denigrate others
1: yeah absolutely go ahead Ian.
0: no it's so i'm really glad that Julia's brought up this issue of social justice and how ofsted uh, increasingly attempt to sort of craft and and engineer their work under this agenda. But, you know, once you look a little bit closer about standard English, then you'll see that it is actually highly involved in in the making and maintenance of of social inequalities. But Ofsted and and other kind of interventions which are geared around the the supposed increasing equality of marginalised speakers' language often operate under this kind of really seemingly kind of benevolent and seemingly kind of benign veneer right where they're framed as giving greater access and greater opportunities to marginalized speakers based simply on this very crude and very simplistic notion that all they have to do is modify the way that they speak but that's simply untrue because all it does is it overlooks and it indeed obfuscates some of the more structural barriers pertaining to Social class hierarchies, institutional racism, white supremacy, colonial logics, etc. There are much, much bigger things at stake and at work here than the simple modification of language. And that crude belief about social justice, justice, which is perpetuated through Ofsted, is a really kind of appealing idea to policymakers because it offers a really cheap way of solving what are in, in fact incredibly complex social problems that are much more expensive to fix with these simply cheap quick fix interventions. Um, so the word gap, for example, and I know we, we might talk about the word gap, is a really good example of another one of these interventions. And we, we briefly talk about the word gap in the article, but um, yeah, we could maybe talk that, about that in a bit if you like.
1: Oh, sure, certainly, please. Um, we can might as well address that right now what what is the word gap when it comes to these uh different um language variations
0: yeah so so word gap ideologies and, and this is again something i mean we, we kind of briefly touch upon this on touch, touch upon this in the paper and it's, it's definitely something that we're interested in looking at in future work in terms of how ofsted perpetuate word gap ideologies and your listeners from from speech and language therapy I'm sure will be very familiar with the phrase the word gap because it's a concept that gets increasingly and for a very long time has been used in introductory training on speech and language therapy and increasingly in the USA and in England on teacher education programs as well so there's there's a little bit of history that again that's needed to, to, to fully understand what what word gap ideologies are so they're, they're kind of rooted in what we might call deficit perspectives of language, which, again, claim that marginalised speakers do poorly in school, not because of anything to do with structural inequality, but because of some kind of cultural and cognitive and linguistic deficit that's, uh, that's located within the speakers and the, and the families rather than structural inequalities. So discourses around limited language have long played a role in, in British colonial policy, but specifically, I think can be really traced back to the fifties and the sixties in the work of some sociologists in England. So, notably, the work by, by people like Basil Bernstein, who uh, who claimed that working class speakers in what he called a, a restricted code. Some psychologists of the time argued that these that, that these kind of purported. Uh, deficits are genetic. Um, And so there's a whole history of deficit ideologies of which word gaps are just one part of, but they were were revived in in 1995 with the publication of Betty Hart and Todd Risley's book in America. And what Hart and Risley claim was that families with, with higher socioeconomic statuses compared with those from lower statuses talk more frequently, use a wider range of uh, we use a wider variety of vocabulary and speak in what they called high-quality linguistic input. Um, so they observed different families in Kansas City, tracked different groups across different socioeconomic categories, tracked children from around seven to, to nine months or to around three to years old, and claimed for the existence of what they called a 30 million word, uh, a 30 million year word gap between the welfare group what they call the professional group so put simply the word gap is simply another way of finding faults in the activities of working class predominantly black families where it is again deemed that the reason that these low-income and racialized children do poorly in school is nothing to do with systemic inequality but simply because their families have literally not spoken to them in enough words so they literally haven't Equips them with, with the adequate linguistic practices to do well in school. So in England, word gap in, in word gap ideologies in the last 10 years or so have seen a real resurgence and Ofsted have played a major role in that, in perpetuating word gap ideologies under this social justice agenda, which Julia talked about before because it's such an appealing and an attractive intervention, which is all rooted in modifying the way that marginalised speakers use language, rather than dealing with some of those structural issues structural issues pertaining to poverty, racial stratification, uh, and so on. So yeah, that's a, a very brief history of the word gap. But there's, there's, a, there's a whole load of critique, especially from, from the USA about word gap ideologies. And Um, I've got some work coming out soon on how that's been renormalized in England. And, yeah, we we briefly touch upon it uh, in in, in the paper that me and Julia wrote as well.
1: And thank you for bringing that up. And I know uh, in particular the Hart and Risley study, you know, they don't take into account the possibility that African-American dialects tends to be a more direct form of speaking so using less words is not less value valuable so you know to pathologize linguistic differences yeah (laughs) that's a whole other ball game but yeah absolutely we have to be really careful at what we're why we're seeing that word gap is it truly due to low SES, socioeconomic status or is there um just linguistic differences there yeah
0: but also the idea, the whole idea is rooted in the fact that you that all this claim that you can objectively categorise and, categorize and characterise language. And as, as, as people who work in language ideology, we always interrogate that notion. Because we want to think about where those boundaries are being drawn, who's deciding on the benchmarks for those boundaries, what those things mean for people who might be deemed to fall outside of those boundaries, And how those whole idea of socially constructed ideologies and language come about and how they come to keep the powerful in power, essentially.
1: And for the listeners, uh, I wasn't sure if I'd have a chance to, to talk about this, but I think it's important to mention that we do see a lot of this also in Canada. Uh, In English, but also, you know, especially when we're looking at the East Coast here in Canada, there are a lot of dialectal varieties, especially in Newfoundland, where they have a very different dialect. And in the French, as well, in Nova Nova Scotia, there are some dialects. And so we do uh, categorize children according to their their dialects and their varieties. And and there are, you know, we don't have... um, an agency like Ofsted but there is some language policing happening in our schools and you know I I will be recording a podcast I think the next episode is on linguistic security and linguistic insecurity and how like you mentioned I think Julia some children uh, when we're talking about dialogic talk and how it's important well when children feel like they're going to be corrected the minute they open their mouth sometimes they just choose not to answer at all and so um, I think it's important to take a step back and look at you know what's happening in our own classrooms here and I am mindful of the time um, you know teachers who are listening educators what can teachers start doing tomorrow tomorrow to foster equity and to welcome all languages and all varieties in their classrooms
2: I think that's it's a difficult question to answer for for lots of reasons. But I suppose, I mean, some teachers might feel that there are a couple of presuppositions in that question that they they might want to challenge. I guess, first, the idea that they're not already welcoming kind of language diversity uh, and variation in their classroom. And then second, also, that it's kind of within their gift to make a change. Um, I think one of the really um, clear things that's come out of the research Ian and I have been doing um, is the amount of pressure teachers are under. So, you know, many teachers do already value diversity, but they struggle to reconcile this with the institutional demands that are placed on them. So in the UK, that includes a centralised national curriculum that they have to follow, pressure from high-stakes standardised testing, and then, of course, from the skills inspectorate that that we've been talking about today. And these institutional pressures really are intense, um, and they do constrain what teachers can feasibly do. In and I interviewed some teachers recently and one of the teachers talked about it as um, a domino effect in which they're me- made to feel that they must model standard English in their own speech and then they transfer this expectation to their students through overt correction and language policing. Um, and, we, we, you know, we find evidence of this pressure in Ofsted's inspection reports. Teachers are expected to be models of standard English and they are expected to police that in their students. Um So it's it's about kind of understanding the sort of pressures and the constraints within which teachers work. Um, You know, having said that, um, I'll go back to the point I made earlier that teachers can engage their students in a dialogue about language, about standard versus non standard English, why we make those distinctions. why standard English is seen as the most prestigious variety, why it holds such power, uh, and start thinking about some of those links with things like race and class so that they begin to understand where these linguistic evaluations are coming from. Um, Another thing might be to consider, so Ian and I have also come across in our work with teachers, this idea that we need to police children's oral language because it has an impact on their writing. And that's something that we've investigated and that we would try to challenge. So Ian and I have looked at samples of people's written work. And actually what we find is that some of the features of non-standardized English that are quite heavily policed in oral language. So take a form such as end, like I, I ain't gonna do that. It, that just doesn't occur in writing. And, and other researchers found the same thing. That's a feature of speech. It just doesn't occur in writing at all. Even those dialect forms that do occur in writing tend to be relatively infrequent. So actually the idea that spoken dialect grammar influences writing doesn't really play out. And certainly there's no evidence that oral correction of speech has any impact on writing. So I think it's really important to really interrogate those differences between speech and writing and unpick some of the assumptions behind language policing in the classroom. Often it is about this idea that it can raise literacy rates um, but Ian and I uh, have challenged that assumption in, in some of the work that's just about to be published.
1: That's really interesting, you know, because I know that I've heard that many, many times. There, the teachers fear that their oral dialect will impact their writing. And so I'm very you know, relieved to hear that there is no empirical data to suggest that this is the case yeah. and that they, you know, we write differently than how we speak and so uh, and and that's okay it's okay for it to be that way and I yeah you know I had written a little note earlier that we often well at least I know when I speak to teachers I will often say you know standard English or standard French is often how language is written but there are a lot of written materials out there that are dialectal and that will you know might maybe poems or maybe there's there's a lot of written material out there that can be shared with students when you're talking about raising awareness and talking about linguistic powers and whatnot, we can incorporate some of these works where we see dialects in writing. So I think it's important to not just show, you know, the standard variety in in, in written form. There are also vari- different varieties in written form as well. So is there anything that you would like to add? I will put... Um, so the article that we talked about the white ears of the Austed is open access. So I will put the link to that in the show notes, as well as the uh, brief summary uh, in the conversation. Is there uh, anything that you would like to add? Um, any final remarks?
0: I think, I think if I could just say one last thing, it would just be about the importance of language ideologies. I mean, challenging the the only way to challenge language ideologies for me is to interrogate your own language ideologies and as soon as you start to do that you you see how durable and how deeply embedded and how normalized they are and if we're if we're truly interested in social justice and and social transformations and that is about a bigger redistribution a complete redistribution of power but it's also about modifying the way that you listen, and it's about challenging your own inherent, like, language ideologies, and being prepared to to challenge those to, to to truly bring about change.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what happened to me when I read your article. I, I, you know, really started thinking about my own language ideologies, and it's not something that's going to change overnight, right? It takes a lot of reflection and, and researching and questioning and yeah. Um, looking for studies such as the ones that you've conducted to get us thinking in a different way? I think that happened to me
2: during the process of doing this research as well so I think it's important to say that linguists are not above this you know we have we are also um, positioned and influenced by widely circulating language ideologies Um, and that point that Ian made earlier about this shift from the speaker to the listener and to listening practices. It's so important because it puts the onus on all of us, Um, no matter, you know, what our position in society, it puts the onus on us as listeners to really interrogate our own listening practices, uh, our own beliefs about language and how those are affecting how we listen. Um, And, you know, I I feel I've, I've benefited from doing this research in that way, reflecting on my own practices Um, And it's, it's so important.
1: Yeah. And it's part of growing as a, as an adult, as an individual. And and to, like you said earlier, Ian, always challenging our own ways. I think it's important to do so. Well, thank you very much. To both of you, this has been very informative, very interesting. I hope that some of the listeners will start thinking about their own linguistic ideologies and um, perhaps a talk about this more openly. Awareness is key. The more we talk about it openly, um, the more it becomes normalized to accept different language variations and um, it is time it is way past way overdue so thank you for this very important work that you are doing and I know that I myself will be following um you're both active on social media especially on Twitter so I will be I can put the um links to your accounts there but uh, thank you very much again for being on this uh, episode of the podcast
0: thank you thanks for your time it was lovely to be
2: here thanks Chantal it was great to talk to you cheers
1: cheers